Who here is planning to do a dry January? Whether you're ready for a detox after a boozy holidays, or you're looking to kickstart a shift in your drinking habits for the long term, Groovy makes some of my go-to alcohol-free craft beers and wines. Speaking from personal experience, having a fridge full of delicious alcohol-free options made it so much easier to stay away from booze when I was first getting sober curious. Now I just drink Groovy because I love the taste. Whether it's their hazy IPA, the creamy stout, or the award-winning sparkling wines, Groovy drinks are also a great option for anybody on a health kick as we look ahead to the new year. All their products contain less than 60 calories and have zero added sugar. You can get your Groovy at getgroovy.com. That's Groovy spelled G-R-U-V-I. Or find them in a variety of specialty and liquor stores throughout North America. Use their store finder to discover a stockist near you. You can also use the code SOBERCURIOUS10 to get 10% off your first online order. Plus, join me and Groovy for a special Dry Jan workshop on January 19th, 2022. Find all the details at getgroovy.com. This is the Sober Curious podcast, and I'm your host, Ruby Warrington. My guest today is psychiatrist Anna Lemke, a specialist in addiction medicine at Stanford University. I invited Anna on to talk about her latest book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, in which she posits that practically anything can become addictive in what she describes as the dopamine-saturated ecosystem of our world today. Her book is a deep dive into the dopamine function of the brain, and she spells out exactly what is happening biologically whenever we reach for a drink, a pill, a smoke, a tweet, another person, or whatever it is for us in an attempt to tip the balance towards pleasure and away from pain. Thanks to the combination of consumerism and technology, she also argues that we must resource ourselves to remain resistant to the addictive impulses that are constantly being triggered. Anna's book is packed with real-life examples of people working through their addictions to anything and everything, and it provides fascinating insights into how to disrupt and reset the reward function of the brain. I found this conversation curiously comforting and validating, and I hope you get as much out of Anna's book as I have. This is Anna Lemke, MD. Anna, welcome. Thanks so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I was so excited to receive your book, which is fittingly quite addictive reading. (laughs) And not least, I think, because you start right off the bat by sharing some intimate details from your own personal life, which is not typical of books of this nature. And I really appreciated Mm. you sharing your own journey here as it really does bring home one of the points you're making, which is that like everybody's addicted to something, you know, Um, I'm very curious always by people who have pursued a particular path with such passion. Why is this your subject? Why, what fascinates you so much about the subject of addiction and addiction medicine? Well, you know, I got into this area of medicine and psychiatry pretty reluctantly It wasn't something that I ever intended. It was really something born of necessity as I was recognizing that many of the patients that I was was seeing for mood problems, anxiety problems, sleep problems were also struggling with some kind of co-occurring substance use problem. And I tried really hard to ignore it, 
Um, but eventually it just kind of came and slapped me in the face. And I said, oh my goodness, I think I have to pay attention to this. And I'm so glad I did because um, the patients are great. And in their journey of recovery, I mean, talk about courage. And I, I've learned so much from my patients. And I think the other piece of this that really drew me in, in addition to the wonderful people that I get to work with, is the spiritual aspect. There are very few places left in medicine where there's room for spirituality and talk about, you know, a higher power. And yet, you know, addiction and recovery is, is really um, very receptive to that. So I was excited. You know, I was educated in the 90s in terms of medical school and psychiatry residency, and that was the decade of the brain. And we were going to solve every problem that there ever was by finding a pill for it. And I just somehow knew in my gut that that was never going to be true or right. Uh, so it was really nice to land in this addiction medicine space where, uh, first of all, there weren't that many medicines, frankly. Uh, and also there was just a lot of talk about um, spiritual pathways, which I, which I really love. Right. Well, maybe we can just can expand on that a little bit, actually. I was sure. kind of going to ask you about that at the end, but since we're here and you brought it up right at the beginning, what does a spiritual solution look like for you? I think that can be intimidating for people who have maybe had a bad experience with organized religion or don't wouldn't consider themselves to be spiritual people. The, the, yeah. the word spiritual can almost be off-putting to some people. Mm -hmm. Oh, it is. And yet, it is. Um, you, talk, you talk in the book about a spiritual solution and the issues with this kind of new age spirituality of like the idea of like a, almost a self-serving God within, right. which could actually mm -hmm. lead us towards more self-soothing behaviors sometimes. Right, right. So what would, in your experience, what does a spiritual solution mean or look like? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, for me to really come up against God and, you know, that's a four-letter word in some circles, but I really use that in the spirit of Alcoholics Anonymous, that it's, mm -hmm. it's however you define it. It's whatever your higher power is. Um, you know, it can be the mystery of the universe. It can be other people in the fellowship of your, um, you know, supportive network. But for me, the heart of useful um, spirituality is willingness to walk a really hard path. It's not, it's not actually about like, you know, these feel good bennies that you get from, you know, thinking that God loves you or something like that at the heart, at the heart of it for me is a really, um, a really profound humility and a recognition that we are all broken, that we are all flawed, deeply flawed, you know, and um, that that's fundamental to our human experience and also what binds us together. That's what, you know, has us reaching out for each other. Um, and, and I just think recognizing that we are very small and very broken and looking and reaching out to something outside ourselves to support us and hold us and guide us, whatever that force may be, that's the key. It's, it's really that pivot out to something uh, beyond ourselves, which is, you know, has some similarities to things like mindfulness meditation, but is fundamentally different 
because it is an outward pivot. It's not, I'm going to look deeply into my mind or my emotions, or I'm going to, you know, do this cognitive practice or that emotional awareness. It's really kind of saying, you know what, like I'm really effed up and so is the world (laughs) and I can't solve this problem and I'm going to stop trying to do it on my own and I'm going to give it over. Mm. I'm going to give it over. Mm. Thank you for that. It resonates. And I think I've always found it fascinating that spirits and spirits have the same um, yeah, there's the same language to describe. Yeah. And, you know, there's that whole idea that when people are using alcohol, for example, they're actually seeking a connection to that something greater that you experience That's that you right. described there. Right. I was curious, my main focus with Sober Curious, particularly in my books is around alcohol, partly mm-hmm. because that was my substance of choice. And it is so, so widespread and obviously so normalized in society to the extent right. that I think a lot of problem drinking goes hidden for, for many, many years, because it looks like normal drinking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And a lot of normal drinking is likewise problem drinking, but mm-hmm. the problems are Undete- often undetected. Mm-hmm. But I notice in your book, there's not that alcohol is mentioned, but there's not a real focus on actually anyone's substance. You sort of dive mm-hmm. in talking about sex addiction, which is not, which is something I see probably spoken about the least actually. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, um, I guess, yeah, I was wondering if that was, if you consciously didn't focus on alcohol or if it wasn't even, or if you really wanted to illustrate how broad, the broad range of addictions that people can experience. The latter. So the point that I was really trying to make is that almost everything is drugified today. You know, investing in stocks and bonds is drugified. Um, you know, eating is drugified, reading novels. I talk about my own romance Mm. novel addiction is drugified. Um, Technology has increased access, potency, novelty, quantity. Um, The endless quantity is is fundamental to the fact that we can't control ourselves anymore and not to mention the potency. And so it wasn't a matter of, you know, not paying attention to alcohol because the, you know, a large portion of my clinical practice is people addicted to alcohol. Epidemiologically, you know, we lose 100,000 deaths every year in the United States due to alcohol addiction. So this is a non-trivial problem, but it was really making the point that all of these substances and behaviors work on the same common reward pathway. And in this day and age, you can get addicted to just about anything. You do, there's a quote here, which I thought, which just really sums that up. You talk about, and I'm not going to ask you to go deeply into the pleasure, pain, reward piece here on this podcast. I do encourage people who really want to understand how that works to buy a real book and to read about it. But you write any reward, because this, I think, just sums it up, any reward that is potent enough to overcome the gremlins, i.e. pain, Mm -hmm. and tip the balance towards pleasure can be addictive. And I think this is very interesting because I've heard along my path over the past 10 years of sort of being in this space and having these conversations, oh, cannabis isn't addictive or MDMA is not addictive. Right. Um, Or I don't know, you even sort of talk about antidepressants Mm -hmm. potentially as being addictive, which is Mm -hmm. quite controversial. Mm -hmm. So could you, yeah, just explain why you wanted to bring that? You, You mentioned that everything has been drugified. Um, but, but perhaps, yeah, why do we, why do we perceive some substances as not being quote unquote addictive, even though they are performing that kind of, um, you know, they're, they're turning down the volume on the gremlins for us. Right. Well, I mean, I think the first thing to recognize is that we individually and collectively want to be in denial. 
we don't want to think that the thing that we are doing, consuming, whatever it is, is addictive, or if it is, that we're addicted to it. So we will readily soak up any narrative that fights against, you know, that, that burgeoning awareness. And that narrative comes in many different forms. Um, the first most obvious one was everybody's doing it. So if everybody's doing it, you know, it must be fine. Another common narrative is it's medicine. You know, cannabis is medicine. So since it's medicine, you know, it's the way that I'm using it is for medicinal purposes. So I couldn't possibly, you know, be addicted or, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on my smartphone for work. Uh, so therefore, you know, it's justified because I'm working. So there are so, so many different, you know, rationalizations. But the truth is that anything that releases dopamine has the potential to become addictive, especially in people who are fundamentally vulnerable to that problem. I mean, the point I make in dopamination is that we've all become vulnerable in this dopamine-saturated ecosystem, but it's very clear, even as I say that, that some people are more vulnerable than others by virtue of nature and nurture. Um, and those individuals really can get addicted to anything. Uh, but, you know, I'll never forget the patient of mine who had a severe alcohol addiction, was in sustained recovery for many years from her alcohol addiction, had been able to stop drinking, but you know, just somehow never really thrived. She also had a very sad co-occurring depressive disorder. Um, she was kind of miserable. She was one of those rare few that got into recovery and could never really reap the benefits, which is always really sad. Mm -hmm. Of course, she was better off not drinking than drinking, but she ultimately got addicted to water because she discovered that by drinking water in large quantities, she could alter her mental status because she became hyponatremic. My point being that anything that we have control over in the moment to alter the way that we feel has the potential, you know, to serve that function in our lives. Wow. That's so fascinating. So what, so what then are the, cause of, again, particularly around alcoholism, you'll hear, oh, well, it's genetic. I was born with the alcoholic gene. You mentioned that there are conditions both as a result of nature and nurture that can make somebody more vulnerable to addiction. What are the kind of, what are the, the key factors that can increase a person's vulnerability so studies show that if you have a biological parent or grandparent with an alcohol use disorder, you are more likely to develop an alcohol use disorder, even if you're raised outside of the drinking home. So that's really key. And that's been replicated in, you know, multi-generational family studies, in twin studies, uh, twin separation studies. It's pretty robust that about 50 to 60% of the risk of becoming addicted is inherited or genetic. And that's that's a pretty high percentage. You know, when we look at the heritability of other mental illnesses, for example, schizophrenia, which we think of as very biological, right? That's like, geez, that's somebody's brain just kind of not working right. Um, you know, we don't have rob as robust data for the heritability of schizophrenia as we do for addiction. So there is this, this strong component. It's complex. It's polygenic. We're never going to find the one addiction gene. You know, it's probably a combination uh, of sort of genes that code for emotion dysregulation, uh, you know, reward searching, novelty seeking, impulsivity, um, oppositional defiant, contrarianness. I mean, a lot of constantly mm. depressed and then co-occurring mental you know, disorders, anxiety, depression, a concentration problems, all of those things um, are kind of woven together. Um, but importantly, you know, it's only 50 to 60% of the risk. That means there's a whole other percentage there that, you know, 
is within you know our determination and even with that genetic risk not everybody with that load is going to become addicted so there are other factors um, developmentally for example trauma we know is related to developing addiction parents who implicitly or explicitly condone substance use either for recreation or as a coping strategy those kids are at higher risk uh, conversely kids who are raised in families where parents like know where they are and what they're doing and what they're carrying in their backpack and what's under their bed, those kids are at decreased risk. And that kind of helicopter parenting, you know, can be in their pros and cons. But when it comes to risk of addiction, it turns out if you know where your kid is, who they're with and what they're doing, their risk of addiction is less. Um, and then the third category for risk is really, uh, really relevant to modern times, which is access. Yeah. So if you're living in a world where you have ready access to a very potent form of your drug of choice in endless quantities, really, really hard uh, to manage uh, addictive behaviors in that setting. Which kind of starts to get us towards what you were saying about this dopamine saturated society, this very drugified society. But before we go there, I am curious, are you pro prohibition? given that ready access and availability mm-hmm. to su- certain substances makes people more likely to start using them problematically. Yeah. So here's the bottom line. When you think about supply and demand, when it comes to not just addiction, but overdose deaths and the other adverse consequences of intoxicants, it's very clear that increased supply leads to more addicted people and more dead people. Right. And when supply is reduced, whatever the source of that reduction, the public health harms decrease. That was true for prohibition. That was, uh, you know, a a constitutional amendment that uh, made it illegal to manufacture, distribute, sell alcohol in the United States between 1920 and 1933. And usually what we hear about when we read the history of that, that intervention or that legislation is that, oh, it led to, you know, the black market, it led to speakeasies, Um, you know, a criminal activity. But what nobody talks about is that rates of public drunkenness and alcohol-related liver disease decreased by half in that decade Mm. and continued to remain at low levels for the next two to three decades. It's only been since about the 1990s that, again, we've seen a huge surge because of increased access, potency, quantity, and novelty. So it's very clear that supply is essential. The U.S. opioid epidemic, another riveting and tragic example when doctors started to write more prescriptions for opioids for mild and chronic pain conditions, more patients got addicted, more opioids were diverted, more teenagers found them in their parents' medicine cabinet, got addicted, died, passed them around. So, you know, supply matters. Um, so am I pro prohibition? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm for what is going to minimize the individual and public health harm from ingesting intoxicating substances. We, I also am a realist. We will never be able to eliminate everything. And we may not even be able to reduce everything. Part of the point of dopamine nation is this recognition that like we're living in a dopaminergic world, right? So we have to, as individuals, as families, and as a culture, figure out how to limit ourselves because access now is, is infinite. There's like, that genie is not going back into the bottle. Right. On the other hand, I do feel that the government, that corporations who make these products, that school systems that educate uh, our young people, 
that the criminal justice system, that they all have a role to play. It can't just be up to the individual. Right. And it can't, it seems, strikes me that it can't just be prohibition if you're not also investing in mental health services and social services and all of the environmental, the, the factors that create the environmental conditions that might cause more people more pain and suffering where they're needing to reach for that substance. And then then comes the criminal activity if the substance is limited because people have a genuine quote unquote need for this me- for what has been their solution or their medicine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, getting to this whole idea of deaths of despair and what are alternative sources of dopamine, healthier sources for people who are living in poverty, who are unemployed, multi-generational trauma. I mean, these are huge, important questions. I will also just, you know, add that, um, you know, the war on drugs has not worked. You know, putting somebody in jail for five years for carrying two ounces of marijuana is not you know, has not been effective policy either, but it doesn't mean that there's no role for the criminal justice system, right? So it's mm-hmm. figuring out what that role should be and how, how we can intervene in a way that's actually helpful and moves people toward recovery. So let's talk then a bit more about this drugified, dopamine-saturated society. Yeah. Um, it strikes me, just reading your book, that so much of this is about the sort of capitalist um, model to ease any provide products and services which are designed to rub the friction from life to m- right. make everything just as easy and convenient and frictionless right. as mm-hmm. possible, pleasurable right. as possible. So we are just surrounded by yeah products, services, food, whatever it might be, technology that is just designed that way in order for us to use and use and use and keep and keep sort of pushing the button for more. Is that, is that what's going on when you talk about a dopamine saturated society? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's our hyper convenient world. It's our sense that the world should be convenient, that we shouldn't experience pain. And if we do something's wrong, Mm. Um, it's the, again, sort of nearly infinite access to these high potency, high novelty, drugs, some of which are traditional and some of which never existed before. I really want to emphasize the novelty point too, because it it brings up this whole issue of drug of choice. You know, I always thought that I was someone who just didn't have the addiction gene because alcohol makes me tired. A caffeine doesn't wake me up. You know, you can go down the list, but really I then discovered that I just hadn't yet met my drug of choice and really it's love and attachment which you know, I discovered in the form of romance novels progressing to a Kindle that allowed me to get you know, them one right after another, progressing to graphic erotica. So essentially, you know, pornography addiction, um, but I never would have guessed that. And so it's, it's, it's the technology that has allowed for the innovation to tweak so many things that we consume and do to turn them into drugs, to keep us clicking and swiping and chewing and swallowing and drinking Mm. and all that, Mm. that now has really um, meant that, you know, that lock and key phenomenon that people experience with their drug of choice is something that we'll probably all, all experience. If, you know, if you haven't yet, it's, it's coming soon to a website near you. Yes. Somebody, some innovations team is figuring out how they can get to your dopamine. That's right. Basically. (laughs) Yeah. And and social media will suggest it to you. So, you know, you just go on social media and then you'll see a YouTube. Oh, that's interesting. I'll try that. You know, 
Yeah, absolutely. And so you also note that in these sort of more developed nations where we have these more easeful, convenient, um, pleasurable lives, there are actually higher rates of anxiety disorder, higher rates of mental pain, even though perhaps you could say that physical pain and suffering has been decreased, there are higher rates of mental pain and suffering. Yeah, isn't that incredible? It's fascinating. And it makes me wonder about how you talk about this, the pain, the pain, pleasure continuum seeking to always balance itself. It's almost like we're seeking, we're experiencing, this is just, you know, conjecture on my part. I'm not a doctor of addiction medicine, but it just sort of seems logical when you spell it out that way, that the more pleasure we're experiencing, that must be counteracted by some degree of pain in order for us to still need to access the pleasure. It's tricky, but. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That's how that's how the brain works, right? right? I mean, we were wired over millions of years of evolution to approach pleasure and avoid pain. And the way that our brains get us to do that is that any pleasurable thing that we do, our brain will adapt to that stimulus, not just to baseline levels of dopamine, but below baseline levels of dopamine, such that, you know, there's that after effect that come down, um, and that is physiologic craving, right? That, that is that come down. Yeah. That makes us then want to, Oh, I'm going to go get some more of that. Like, cause I have this feeling, this feels bad. I'm going to go get some more of that. And ultimately with repeated exposures to, you know, highly dopaminergic substances and behaviors, we essentially end up in a chronic dopamine deficit state because our brains are overloaded. They essentially can't re you know, adapt to all of that dopamine because they weren't wired for that. They were wired for a world of scarcity for ever present danger where you had to walk tens of kilometers, you know, to get food and water. And then, you know, you were so grateful and exhausted when you got there and the next day it started all over again, right? Instead, we're like, you know, we've got the fire hose of dopamine that we're all ingesting every day. So naturally, you know, our brain is compensating by downregulating dopamine And it's just, it's incredible. Like the rates of worldwide depression have gone up 50% in the last three decades, especially in rich, in rich nations with the United States leading the way world happiness reports show that people were happier in 2008 than they were in 2018 with people in rich nations being the least happy people in the world. Rates of anxiety are going up all over the world. Again, especially in rich and developed nations rates of suicide. So it's, it's really fascinating and, 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 you know, tragic. And the way that I understand it is essentially that we are getting too much pleasure and too little pain. Right. And again, we'll go there in a second, but something else that came up for me while I was sort of digesting all of this was that perhaps we're also quicker to label mildly uncomfortable experiences as painful because we're so um, inured to pain. We're so unused to experiencing pain in our daily lives, Mm -hmm. particularly the more affluent, the more materially comfortable we become. We're much more, it's almost like the princess and the pea scenario, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) we feel these teeny sort of teeny sort of wrinkles in our experience as like, you know, really grating. Right. I mean, it's the theory of relativity of pain and pleasure um, that really are, subjective experience of what is pleasurable and what is painful is profoundly impacted by prior experiences. And, you know, if we've done nothing but sit on the couch, eat bonbons and watch Netflix, then, you know, a stubbed toe is like the equivalent of getting your leg chopped off. Yeah. Um, and, And that's just, that's just how the brain works. 
it's not a judgment, you know, it's like it's a moral not judgment. It's kind of like, you know, <laughs> yeah, weak or, or, or Right, or being wimpy or something. It's just yeah. that that's how the nervous system works. Um, and that's, that's what, you know, and, and so not just on the physical pain level, but also on the emotional pain level, we're so used to doing something to not feel uncomfortable mm. uh, that, you know, we end up chasing our tail and then no matter what we do, uh, we're uncomfortable. Right. And which, you know, in, in So Be Curious, I, I obviously didn't come up with this phrase, but I talk often about like the importance of getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. Anybody who's been through any kind of recovery process, regardless of the level of their addiction, will be familiar with that sort of just being with the discomfort, first and foremost, potentially of not having the thing that you are addicted to. And then once you've got used to not having that thing, just the general discomfort of being in a human body in this world, you know? Yeah. And, you know, Dopamine Nation really takes it one step further. Dopamine Nation says, if you're uncomfortable or unhappy in your life, do something hard, do yes. something painful, um, do something anxiety provoking. Like that's really the intervention. If you are having a bad day, give up a pleasurable thing and do something that's hard so that the way you're feeling right now in, you know, in sort of in relief or compared to, but it really works is the thing. It really works, especially if it's a regular practice. I'm pausing the episode here to tell you about Curious Elixirs, who make booze-free craft cocktails infused with adaptogens to help you unwind. Curious are on a mission to create the world's most sophisticated cocktails without the alcohol. Whatever your reason for not drinking, Curious Elixirs are a fantastic booze-free option for holiday parties and for nights off drinking in between festivities. Curious Elixir number one is a classically inspired alcohol-free riff on the Negroni, or try Curious Elixir number six before it runs out of stock. Served tropical style or enjoyed as a vegan holiday nog. In addition, each Curious Elixir is handcrafted with organic ingredients and no refined sugar, with the added benefit of those adaptogens and plants to help you relax and de-stress without the hangover. You can order Curious Elixirs online and have them shipped directly to your door at CuriousElixirs.com where you can also sign up to the subscribers-only Curious Cocktail Club to ensure your fridge stays stocked. You can also get $10 off any order over $50 with the code RUBY22. Now back to the episode. Oh, it's so counterintuitive. But yeah. I think this is what, you know, anyone who's listening to this is kind of, is I think, ready for that, ready to hear this mm-hmm. and sort of under, right. probably understands this on some sort of an intuitive level. It's like Laura McCowan, I think you're on her podcast, one of her, oh no, it's, I think it's maybe it's Glennon Doyle Melton, one of her catchphrases is we can do hard things. And there is right, something right. very sort of, there's something um, sort of vitalizing about that, you know, just this yeah, idea of like, oh, I'm actually stronger me. than I think. And I talk That's about right. that a lot as well. You know, people will ask me what have been the biggest gifts for you of removing alcohol. And I, I'll often say I'm so much more resilient than I thought I was. And I'm so much more confident right. than I thought I was mm-hmm. because I've had mm-hmm. to prove to myself I've had to put myself in situations which might be deeply uncomfortable to me without my trusty kind of like, sidekick, you know, Mm -hmm. and just kind of be with it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that works on two levels. It it works on the level of you literally have upregulated your own dopamine production and other endogenous feel good hormones, your, you know, endocannabinoid system, your endo opioid system, serotonin, norepinephrine, because you've eliminated 
this intoxicant from yeah. your life. Mm-hmm. So on a physiologic level, you know, your pleasure pain balance is at homeostasis and resilient, but on another, you know, metacognitive level, it's a touchstone. You can look back and say, you know what? I survived that thing. I can survive this thing right here. I can get through. I got through it before. I remember how hard it was. I can get through this. And that's really important too. Yeah. It sort of has a quality of building muscle around that thing. Right. Yeah. And also just your self-narrative and your identity. And self-worth actually can rise. And low self-esteem was definitely one of the reasons that I used uh-huh. alcohol, for example. So yeah. that's a good connection to make. Yeah. So this is, so I also, one of the first episodes I did, and again, I write about this in my book, one of the first episodes in the podcast was about what I termed the pleasure deficit. But I was coming from the perspective that pleasure is often deemed guilty, like actually actively seeking out pleasure is sort of mm. still has this idea that it's that it's, we should feel guilty about wanting pleasure in our lives mm. and that pleasure mm-hmm. has a degree of tab- a taboo around it, mm-hmm. particularly mm-hmm. sexual pleasure, for example. So yeah. I thought it was really interesting that you, you open by talking about sex addiction. And it struck me that even with your, what became your addiction to erotic literature, there was an element of the sort of illicit nature of it that mm-hmm. was part of the addictive mm-hmm. quality of that, you know? Oh, yeah. The idea of sure. the vision of you sort of at three in the morning, mm-hmm. kind of rapidly sort of skimming the Kindle <laughs> for like the racy parts. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, and I wonder um, to what extent do you think that maybe even historically thinking and just kind of in terms of our conditioning around how humans experience pleasure, who is entitled to pleasure and mm. why and under mm-hmm. what circumstances has kind of driven this, this kind of almost over con- this overconsumption of pleasure now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. So yeah, I've given some thought to this. Um, and I think I think it has to do with how we conceptualize adult behavior, that we really think that adults should be continent around their desires, mm. that it's okay to have desires, but you need to be in control of those desires. A baby is incontinent. You know, a baby cries, you know, for the mother's breast, uh, you know, it craps itself, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that babies can do that, but, but grown-up people need to be in, in control of their desires. And when we're not, you know, when we're incontinent, incon- you know, incontinence, that's a term Aristotle used, but also actually we use that medically when we describe somebody who can't manage their, their own bowels, they're incontinent. Mm. I've heard people describe themselves as being emotionally incontinent. Right. Similar. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's then an enormous amount of shame around that. And I know that for me, you know, as a Stanford professor and as a physician and as a psychiatrist, I mean, I was really frightened to write about my own erotica addiction because basically what I'm revealing is my own incontinence, right? My own unchecked desire to be pleasured, you know, to have this experience um, that I can control. And that's, you know, my kind of Mm. secret. Um, I mean, it's very, very shameful, incredibly Mm. shameful. Mm. Um, And I think some of that shame is appropriate. And I talk about that a little bit at the Mm. end of the book, Mm. but, but too much of that shame can really be very pernicious because then that can just drive more use, right? Instead of reaching out for help or telling people what we're really doing, we hide it, we're ashamed of it. 
and then we perpetuate the problem. So I don't know if that's quite what you were getting at, but... Um, yeah, I think it sort of gets there, because particularly as you linked it to shame. We feel shame about wanting pleasure. And I think right. shame is just, again, just from conversations I've had in, in my own life, it can be the emotion or the feeling that people sort of most want to escape from. It can be one of the most painful things to, oh, yeah. to feel. I, there is mm-hmm. something wrong with me, not even the guilt of I did something wrong, but there is something fundamentally wrong with me. And like you say, an, an inability to control myself or to control mm-hmm. my desires or mm-hmm. to keep myself in check mm-hmm. can, be, can become shameful. And so oh, yeah. when we're feeling shame, of course, we want to use to escape from that feeling. That's friction, right. that's discomfort, that becomes mm-hmm. pain. The shame itself becomes pain. Yeah. This actually does lead into, I wanted to speak about this idea of pro-social shame. And I, the way I was kind of, the way I kind of linked that back to my own experience was thinking about how we also live in this very perfectionist society. Yeah. And certainly, um, yeah, I've got another quote from you here. We all desire a respite from the world, a break from the impossible standards we set for ourselves and others. I can completely relate to that, as I think many people listening will be able to. Um, for example, I, I most definitely, as a very high achieving, kind of straight A student, high career achiever, absolutely now can reflect back a note that I used alcohol as an, an opportunity to let myself off the hook, to just kind of be a mess for a few hours and Mm -hmm. to put down all those quote unquote cares, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, sorry, I'm just, I've actually written out a question here. And I think as, as, as a counter to that, you know, part of my work around not needing that substance anymore has definitely been around accepting all of my flaws and going back to what you were saying about this, this spiritual solution, I'm only human. I am only human. And as a human being, I am innately don't have all of the answers can never have all of the answers. I can Mm -hmm. never be everything to everyone. Mm -hmm. And some people are going to dislike me no matter what I do, like whatever it might be, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah. And I guess in AA, they might call these character defects, which we're then encouraged to hand over to our Mm -hmm. higher power. So Mm -hmm. it does all, all roads sort of lead back there in the end, I think. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you you speak about, I guess there's toxic shame or right. antisocial shame, right. which is definitely shame. See, right. destructive mm-hmm. shame, which I definitely mm-hmm. see in some of the sort of cancel culture on social media and those sorts of spaces. But what's the difference between sort of toxic, toxic or destructive shame and pro-social fame? Shame. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, I totally agree with you, you know, the, the way that that shame can become the fuel for our ongoing addictive behaviors and our isolation and our secrecy. But shame is also a powerful pro-social emotion. It's the the emotion that we experience when we um, have done something against group norms. And on a very primitive level, even if it's not a literal level, we fear being kicked out of the tribe or shunned in some way. And this is an incredibly powerful emotion. It's, it's a gut punch of an emotion. It's associated with intense fear of abandonment. Um, it's really powerful emotion. And it's incredibly pro-social because it's the fear for the, it's exp- the pain of that experience itself, plus the fear of having it in the future, which gets us to change our behavior 
and adhere to group norms. And hopefully those group norms are healthy group norms, right? I mean, you can Mm. be in a toxic tribe and that's not good, Mm. but you know, if the group norms like in AA is, Hey, you know, don't drink because you know, you you're an alcoholic and it's better for you not to drink. Then shame can, can work in a positive way. I also think it's true that, you know, within nuclear families, so thinking about parents, I think it's important to point out to our kids when they've done something that is wrong, you know, and to, I mean, shame is such a powerful word. So I I use it, you know, sparingly because I don't want Mm -hmm. people to get the wrong impression. I'm not saying we should shame our kids, but they should feel shame. They should know the feeling of shame. For example, you know, our son, we just heard from his swim coach that he was an hour and a half late for swim practice and he lied about, uh, you know, why he was an hour and a half late. Of course, those lies always catch up with us. The swim coach, you know, found out from his sister uh, that he wasn't at cross country and that's not why he was late. Anyway, the long and the short of it is, uh, you know, we sat down with our son and we said, hey, you know, whatever's going on, we don't want you to lie about it. Um, tell the truth and telling the truth about things that you've done that are wrong is really hard and shameful in the moment, but it's also the thing that will get you to do the right thing next time, Mm. because you don't want to be in that spot where you're having to admit the wrong thing, right? Mm. Or worse yet, lie about it, get caught later, and then feel bad about the wrong things, plus the fact that you lied about it, right? Yeah. Just be honest up front. Nobody's perfect, right? We don't don't need to try to be perfect. Tell the truth. That's hard. That's shameful. But it's better than the alternative. And it's an important emotion to experience because the loop is, you know, when we have to tell the truth about why we're late, for example, we're going to try really hard next time not to be late. And being on time is pro-social because being late is narcissistic, right? It says that that person's time is less important than your time. Mm-hmm. So these are the kinds of, you know, things I think that we need to think so, about. So another word that comes up often when I'm talking to people about a sober life or a, a present life um, integrity is integrity. And what you're describing right. actually links this sort of the two sides of the coin, right? So shame is actually the result of the, the sort of the, on the other side of the coin from integrity. Yeah. And actually yeah. when, when we're thinking about shame in a pro-social way, the opposite of that, yeah, is integrity is doing the right thing. Right. Like having the cognitive resonance between my actions are aligned with my beliefs and my ethics. And then I That's suppose it. the key piece is to determine whether the group ethics are good, <laughs> whether right. this is something you want to be aligned with. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Cause there are definitely toxic groups out there and, yeah. and their norms are, you know, better, maybe better not followed, but, right. but again, even in a toxic group, shame is at play, um, you know, to strengthen social ties. That's the yeah. role of shame. Yeah. Oh, it's, well, in terms of, you know, going back to sort of accepting all of our emotions and being able to feel all of our emotions, that actually helps me to reframe that feeling of shame and, mm. and gives me mm-hmm. some things to look at. Why am I feeling ashamed? Like, and, yeah. and some curiosity around that. Right. So, no, I think that's good, you know, and like and acknowledging when we feel shame and how powerful it is and why yeah. and, and, rem- it's, and remembering it and saying, okay, how can I avoid feeling shame 
you know, next time I'm in this situation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Again, and then integrity leading to increased self-worth because you're actually acting as the person that you want to believe yourself to be. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of perfectionism, um, in the whack-a-mole of kind of like addictive tendencies, I mean, workaholism was the sort of the first one that came up for me and, and is still there to an extent, but I recently have been experimenting or just kind of getting curious about my email addiction. Oh yeah. And I particularly Mm -hmm. wanted to speak to you about this because you're one of those people like me who will email back within seconds. (laughs) And I thought, hmm, I wonder if she she might know a thing or two about email addiction. Love it. Love it. Okay. Yeah. So this is, this is, yeah, you've hit on one of my compulsive behaviors. Oh, I um, have it too. It's a safe right. space. Now, let me say on the one hand, that is very aligned with my values, right? Like I think if somebody emails me, I should try hard to respond. Right. Yeah. I just, yeah. I just think that that's common human decency to try to respond to another human and do it in an egalitarian way, right? So respond to the, the stranger I don't know as much as to the celebrity who might reach out to me because mm-hmm. that, that's consistent with my values. Um, on the other hand, yeah, I mean, I have this compulsive thing where I want to get the stuff out of my inbox and I have a bunch of folders where I keep stuff and file them. And, you know, when my inbox gets down to zero emails, which happens about once a year, it's like euphoria for me. I mean, frankly, it's, it's just like the <laughs> biggest cause for celebration ever. And yeah, that's, you know, that I'm a slave to my emails. I mean, it's not good. And then the other thing too, is sometimes I think, well, I'm not going to, I want to respond right now to this, but I don't want this person to think that I'm constantly on email. So maybe I'll wait 24 hours. I'm exactly the same recently though. And again, this will kind of like open the door to kind of like some of the last things I want to speak to you about. I've recently, and I, I did this with social media quite successfully. Actually, I feel very detached from, I don't feel kind of grasping around my social media anymore, but I've been sort of moderating my behavior in the same way that I used to try to moderate my behavior around alcohol. Right. Um, With alcohol and it always took me back to the same place, which I guess was more, quote unquote, destructive, like obviously destructive. But recently I've been saying no email until three or 4 p.m. And actually it's incredible how much more present I feel, how much calmer I feel going Mm -hmm. through my actual tasks, how much more work I'm getting done. And so Mm -hmm. again, similar to me with alcohol, because it wasn't, I hadn't been brought to a, you know, an awful rock bottom with alcohol. It's actually only when I've kind of removed email from my life at least for most of the day, I've right. noticed how much time, energy, and space it was kind of like. Oh, presence. yeah, I know. It it's was incredible. Stealing yeah. from me. So I, I do something similar, I, um, not till 3 p.m., but I do a couple of things. First of all, I make it a general practice to not get on the computer at all until mm-hmm. about nine in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I do a bunch of other things before then. I, you know, I make my bed, I exercise, I eat breakfast, I do household chores, I do other things. So, so again, to delay that moment when, you know, and consolidate the time. And I do the same thing on the other end of the day by five or 6 p.m., I shut it down and that's it. So a little bit like, you know, intermittent fasting, this is a self-binding strategy mm. based on time, Mm. Um, you know, to consolidate that behavior and then try hard not to do the behavior outside of it. 
And I do try to do a Sabbath where once a day I'm not on the computer at all. Now, I, I'm not always successful, but I think those are, are things that really, um, you know, we need to think about because yeah. otherwise it's just so too easy to get do the like the 24-7 thing. Just constantly. And it reminds me of um, one of Tristan Harris's TED Talks. Um, he's literally talking about how our technology are slot machines. You know, we're pulling right. the lever, pulling the lever. And I'm looking right. at myself while watching the documentary, like, right. refresh, refresh <laughs> on my email. And I'm like, refresh. I'm like, oh my God, I'm pulling the lever. Yeah, right, right. No, <laughs> and I think it was actually watching true. that that made me realize, oh my God, email is my drug of choice now. Yeah, right. Email has mm-hmm. become my drug of choice. And I was even yeah. looking at this. I was speaking to my husband and I was like, what, what, what pleasure am I getting from email? Oh, because I think that every time I pull down, I, there might be an interview request from the New York Times. There might right. be because there has been mm-hmm. once or yeah, twice. Right. So like, there might be. <laughs> right. No, I know what you mean. It's Validation, uh, or, basically. Right. Or even the for. bad stuff. It's like, or even I want, to, I want the email mm. about the bad stuff because I want to be able to put out the fire while it's still small. You know, yeah. so that's also a pull, which is sort of interesting. Yeah. And the other thing is we try to take, um, you know, tech-free family vacations where everybody leaves their devices behind. And I find after two or three days, I get out of that loop where I'm not thinking about it. And then I don't want to go back. I genuinely, when I get back home yeah. from those vacations, I don't want to check email. I don't, because I know I'm going to get caught up in the loop. Feel the heaviness of it. Yeah, right. Yeah. But mm. of course, you know, this is the challenge of modern life. We mm-hmm. we cannot not be connected. Most of exactly. us for our jobs, yeah. you know, have to be online in some capacity. And that's why I talk in Dopamine Nation so much about moderation, yeah. you know, and how to moderate and the importance of a dopamine fast before yeah. moderating so you can reset reward yes. pathways, self-binding strategies for moderation. Because I mean, I, I would kind of love it if like the internet went up in smoke tomorrow. You know what? I think I, I would actually celebrate. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, I would love it, but it's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. So I have, I have to figure out in my life, you know, how to manage this. Yeah, absolutely. So perhaps, so, so I was very, I'd, I'd read a little bit about dopamine fasting, which you go into in depth in the book. And you just mentioned here, and it made me think, so my, my follow-up book to the original Sober Curious book was called the hundred, the Sober Curious Reset. And it guides people through 100 days of not drinking. And you even just said before moderation, before attempting moderation, you need to reset your system. And so some people had asked me, why 100 days? That's a long time. That's kind Mm. of intimidating. I was like, Mm -hmm. it needs to be. Yeah. Because actually 30 days, you can kind of like white knuckle it through 30 days with a substance like alcohol, in my experience and and the experience of many other people I've spoken to. But a hundred days is intimidating and yeah, you will be confronted. You will, you will experience pain, suffering of all kinds over a hundred day period. If you're a human yeah. being living in this world, you're going to experience mental, physical, emotional, spiritual discomfort in the course right. of a hundred days. Right. Um, and so it was, it was, yeah, interesting to think, oh, I sort of intuitively created a yeah. dopamine fast for people. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. But can you speak a little bit more to, um, you mentioned self-binding techniques a couple of mm-hmm. times. And I'm, even with the email on the first day that I didn't look until 4 p.m., I literally found myself sitting on my hands. <laughs> so I was physically being compelled to kind of like yeah. open my email. I was like, this is like giving up smoking. It really yeah. it was that sort of physical yeah. feeling of like, oh, compulsion. So my self-binding was sitting on my hands. Right. But can you speak right. a bit more to the concept of self-binding and perhaps dopamine fasting in general? 
Yeah. So, you know, dopamine fasting, the purpose of it is to allow our reward pathways to reset, to allow our bodies to upregulate again, our own endogenous dopamine production, which has been downregulated to compensate for these huge boluses of dopamine we get from these various intoxicants that we're all ingesting and engaging in. So it's, it's, that's, that's key because it allows us to, first of all, stop having intrusive thoughts and cravings about wanting to use. Uh, It allows us to get pleasure out of more modest rewards. It sort Mm -hmm. of dilates open the lens of our minds uh, to be able to sort of see the world and be present in a way we can't when we're narrowly focused um, on our drug of choice. And it allows us to see true cause and effect. So when we're chasing dopamine, we really don't see the impact of that behavior on our lives. It's not till we get out of it as you did with, you know, realizing, wow, I'm so much more productive and I'm so much more present or whatever it is Mm. when I don't check my email, but you probably wouldn't have been able to get there without, you know, an email fast, right. Without a period of time away. Um, So that that's really key. And there's science. I mean, I have tons of clinical experience showing that it takes a minimum of 30 days for people to reset these reward pathways. The first two weeks are hell, but usually by week three or four uh, patients feeling better getting out of that, you know, vortex of compulsive overconsumption. There's an interesting study by Nora Volkoff, the head of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, looking at the brains of um, people with severe addictions to various substances in withdrawal two weeks after they stopped their drug of choice, showing decreased dopaminergic transmission in the nucleus accumbens at two weeks after stopping compared to healthy controls, which is an indicator that two weeks is insufficient to reset reward pathways and restore baseline dopamine homeostasis. Another interesting study took um, adult males addicted to alcohol who were drinking on a daily basis, who also met criteria for major depression or clinical depression, put them in a hospital, gave them no treatment except no access to alcohol. At one month of hospitalization, 80% of those individuals no longer met criteria for major depressive episode. So without any antidepressant treatment or psychotherapy or anything like that, just not drinking resolved their depression. In other words, they were in a dopamine deficit state, the universal symptoms of withdrawal or the dopamine deficit state from any addictive substances, anxiety, irritability, depression, insomnia, and craving. So just abstaining will make us feel better. Um, and then in terms of, you know, when patients come back after a month of abstinence, I usually do a month because longer than that patients, uh, it's too much for them to wrap their heads around. But I say a month, I agree with you. 90 days is even better. A year is even better. 18 months, probably ideal, mm. but 30 days, people can wrap their head around that. Then they come yeah. back after 30 days. I say, well, what was good? and What was bad? Yeah. The good list is long, less anxious, less depressed, sleeping better, more energy, more present on and on. The bad is usually bored, didn't know what to do with my time and couldn't hang out with my friends. So those are the top three bad things. And then I ask patients, well, what do you want to do? So many good things. You want to abstain for another month or you want to go back to using? Most of them want to go back to using, but they want to use differently. They want to use less. They want to use moderation. So then we talk about self-binding strategies and that can be chronological, categorical, or spatial. And those are just ways of putting a barrier between ourselves and our drug of choice. Because when we slow it down Mm. and take a little bit of time between the urge to use and actually using, that pause is often just enough 
to get us to decide not to use. And it's really powerful. And we can do that by simple things like turning our cell phone off before we put it into our bag. That additional one minute to turn it on again might be annoying enough to not have me turn it on, right? Or not keeping alcohol and potato chips and chocolate cake or whatever it is in the house. Getting rid of all my bongs and my other cannabis paraphernalia. Those are all like literal barriers between myself and my drug of choice. Other things, you know, are time saying, well, I'm going to use, but I'm going to make sure I leave enough time in between use for homeostasis to be restored. So what that means really importantly is not daily use. Once we're Mm -hmm. using daily, we're just chasing dopamine. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to just, you might say, patients might say, well, I'm just going to use on Fridays and Saturdays. I'm going to make sure I have Sundays to kind of recover because, you know, Sundays is the dopamine deficit state. And then I'll be ready to go for work on Mondays. And then being really careful that we then don't binge on those days, right? Because that then also defeats the purpose. Because if you're pressing on the pain side of that balance really hard, even if you're doing it infrequently, that's also really not good for our brains because it releases cortisol, our stress hormone. You know, so really, I mean, any deviation from our baseline is stress. That's the definition, biological definition of stress. And our brains have to work hard to restore homeostasis and they release a lot of adrenaline cortisol to do that. So those are some of the ideas. Yeah. Right. And again, with my social media habit, I, um, I would delete the app off my phone. I would have it on office hours because I used to feel like it was essential for my work. I have since realized that actually it's not at all, (laughs) but I would delete it off my phone, you know, weeknight evenings, and then all weekend, Right now I've got to a place where if I need to post something, I put the app on my phone, I post it and then I delete it. There you go. That's not a problem. It's not a problem for me. It feels like it's kind of like an annoyance that I even have to put it on and do it, but I just do that. And I've recently, my new one is I'm not reading any of the comments because the comments are too um, stimulating for me, either in the adrenaline or the dopamine kind of Right. No, response, you're, you're absolutely, basically, you're, it's either you're a nasty right. comment that puts me into mm-hmm. fear, fight, flight, or it's a positive comment that makes me feel like I've taken a line of cocaine. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. And I, I, I have to say, I, I intuitively knew that very, very early. So yeah. as I've done more and more podcasts and public appearances, people are always great. They always send me the links. I never listen to any of them and I never watch any of them. Right. And the reason for that is because I don't want it to be about me and my performance. It's really about the message and what we're all trying to teach each other. But if I watch myself or listen to myself, it it becomes about me. And then, yeah, exactly. You say, I'm like horrified that I look like that, or I said that, or I'm elated because this person liked it or no, I mean, you just can't get into that. No. So it's, it's challenging as a, as a, as a human being in the world. Right. Um, so then what, what about, so then the prescription, the dopamine nation prescription might then be a dopamine fast, a period of abstinence, plus some healthy doses of sort of existential suffering like, <laughs> layered, yeah. layered in there. Oh, for sure. That comes, that's part of the package. <laughs> the combo. It, yeah. Right. But it's the idea that the project of suffering is a worthwhile one. Yeah. You know, as opposed to this, this idea that's prevalent now in culture is, oh, well, if I'm suffering, I'm damaging my brain, right? I, I'm, I'm setting myself up for PTSD. It's a, it's a very different notion than, you know what? I'm building up mental calluses. I'm, I'm doing this hard thing. I'm generating dopamine, 
which is essentially, you know, what, what we, what we are doing. Yeah. If we can just recognize that and make it, you know, a a worthy project. So the, the recipe of dopamine nation is, you know, give up the pleasure, endure the pain and even invite pain into your life. Seek it out as a way to build up dopamine, to build up your mental resilience, to reset your reward pathways to the side of pleasure so that you have more resilience in the face of pain and more access to joy. Mm. And I suppose pain then in that sense, it's not literally, you know, go and ask someone to like punch you in the face <laughs> necessarily, <laughs> no. unless that's like something you're, you're really into. <laughs> maybe if you're a boxer or something. Maybe, no, right, no. exactly. Yeah. But sort of like um, deprivate, almost like deprivation. If overindulgence is the right. issue, then perhaps depriving yourself of something, whether that's depriving yourself of validation, whether it's depriving yourself of, you know, time to sort of pamper yourself when you could be out helping a friend in need or whatever it might be. Well, I think it's, it's, yeah, it's, you're right. It's tricky. And and pain is kind of a catch-all phrase that, that, you know, is maybe easily misunderstood. It's doing things that are hard in the moment Mm. that make us feel good afterwards. Mm. So it's not that we're not searching for joy and it's not that we can't have desire. We we all want to feel good and we're, we're really wired to figure out what are the things that are going to make us feel good. But the key is what are the things that will make us feel good in the long run? Mm. And those things that make us feel good immediately I, I wish it worked in the long run. It doesn't, right? They, yeah. it, it stops working. It, it wears out because of our primitive wiring. Uh, so we have to find other ways of having a more enduring source of joy. And usually that is a very delayed gratification phenomenon where in an iterative daily way, we do small things that are you know, difficult. Um, but over the long run, we know because, you know, we, we're going to try it out. These are all experiments that, that we'll feel better about ourselves. We, you know, Kant has this wonderful um, quote that um, the moral man stands in reverence to the natural man or something like that, mm. um, you know, which is right. Like when we do something that's consistent with our values, we feel good like that. We feel good about ourselves. Right. Mm-hmm. Um and, and the pain can take many forms, right? It can take like, an, yeah, doing something for others, or it can take, um, you know, physical exercise, ice cold water baths, doing something that's anxiety provoking, but that, you know, makes, gives you better contact with other humans, telling the truth. That's, that's very one, difficult, yeah. <laughs> you know, sitting with our shame, uh, analyzing our own character defects and what we contributed to the problem. These are all things that are exercises and practices that, I just are really worth doing because in the long run, they bring us joy. It makes me think of the, you know, Victor Frankl's famous man's search for meaning, you know, suffering is, is what creates meaning in life. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Anna, thank you so, so much for coming on. It's the book is fascinating. Dopamine nation. I encourage anybody who's interested in learning more about how the brain actually works. It's just so helpful to know that we don't have to be a slave to this. As yeah. you say, like we are the mm-hmm. ones who are in control here. And actually it's the outside world that is kind of manipulating That's our, right. our, our brain, our, our brain processes basically. So um, there's a lot of empowerment that comes in kind of taking back control over that. I think. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Thanks again for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Great conversation. 
That was my conversation with the brilliant Anna Lemke, and her book again is Dopamine Nation. You can also catch Anna talking about tech addiction on the excellent documentary, The Social Dilemma. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with a friend and leave a review wherever you are listening as it just helps more people find the series. As always, this podcast features original music and is edited by alloaudio.com. That's A-L-O-E audio.com. 